This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Benny? Benny, it's Elias. I brought the paperwork. Benny, are you home? Hello? I really hope you didn't forget our appointment. You kook. Anybody home? I have other things to do today, you know. Are you hiding in your study? Get out here, you rascal, or I'll give you a good knock on your head! On the morning of July 3rd, 1929, real estate dealer Vincent Elias arrived at the Evangelist household at St. Aubin and Mack Streets in Detroit. Elias was carrying paperwork for the homeowner, Benny Evangelist, to sign completing a land purchase deal from the previous day. But when Elias entered the home, he was completely unprepared for what he found. Benny Evangelist was in his office, seated in his chair, with his arms folded neatly over his chest. His head was lying on the floor, next to his own feet. It had been severed with an axe. Photos of a dead child lying in a coffin were strewn nearby. And it gets worse. The rest of Benny's family was upstairs, killed as they slept in their beds. His wife, Santina, was still cradling the family's youngest child, Mario, in her arms. Mario's head was bashed in, while Santina's was nearly severed like her husband's, hanging on by a narrow string of flesh. And in another bedroom, the couple's three other children were found. Their bodies were also mutilated. But the bodies weren't all that was found. Pamphlets of occult literature were scattered all over the house. And downstairs in the basement was a makeshift shrine with human-sized wax figures suspended overhead on wires. Creepy. The Detroit police were baffled. Who could have slaughtered a family of six, including four children? Why were the murders so brutal? And just what had been going on in this house? Thank you. 
This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the St. Albans Street Massacre. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Benjamino Evangelista was born in Naples, Italy in 1885. At the age of 17, Benjamino emigrated to the United States and settled in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with an older brother, Antonio. Soon after, he Americanized his name to Benny Evangelist. The two brothers lived in harmony for about two years. And that's when Benny began to experience visions. The exact nature of these trances is unknown, but Benny documented them as occurring between midnight and 3 a.m. They would recur on a regular basis for the next 20 years. But while these trances fascinated and inspired Benny, they were upsetting to Antonio. Benny, you must stop with the nonsense. But I feel the light of God. These visions are a gift. It's not natural. Nothing good comes so late. You're too close-minded, brother. And are you a good Catholic boy? I won't allow it anymore. What will Mom and Papa say? Please, Antonio, don't force me away. But tensions between the brothers only grew, and shortly after, Benny left his brother and struck out on his own. He wound up in rural York County, Pennsylvania, working in a railroad gang. Here, Benny's fascination with the occult grew. He moved alone into a shack, and soon he was introduced to a type of regional folk magic called powwowing. Powwowing was a type of German folk magic that was brought to the United States by German-speaking Protestant immigrants, particularly the Pennsylvania Dutch. Despite originating in Protestant culture, much of this folk magic was based on pre-Reformation Christianity. This included invoking the saints and the use of sacred objects for healing and protection. It was this tradition of powwowing that introduced Benny to using herbs and potions in healing. Benny would lecture his fellow workers about mysticism, and he began to perform magical rituals with another laborer, Aurelius Angelino. Benny's association with faith healing and the occult grew strong enough to earn him the nickname Benny the Preach among his co-workers. Eventually, Benny and his brother Antonio reconciled enough for Benny to join Antonio, now living with a family in Detroit. It was 1920. The American auto market was booming, and Antonio was working in a car factory. Benny found work as a carpenter and a plumber. He excelled at his work and was soon able to strike out on his own. Which allowed him to continue his practice as a faith healer. He sold love potions and amulets, cast astrological charts, and spoke prophecy. It's safe to say he was a bit eccentric. But fortunately for Benny, according to at least one account, his reputation as a healer led to him meeting his wife. Good afternoon. How can I help you today? This is my daughter, Santina. She's collapsed due to exhaustion and none can rouse her. We've heard of your skills. Please help her, if you can. She's very beautiful. Do you have payment? Yes, sir. Thank you. Oh, heavenly spirit, Bless this poor girl and ease her burdens. Lead her back to the waking world and lead her away from the darkness. Oh, 
Santina? Thank God. The smell is strong. It's a bitter root. Are you feeling better? A bit. I'm so tired. Can you help me? Are you often so ill? Yes. Father says I work too hard at my studies. You do. You strain yourself. I see the truth of it. I can cure her, sir, but to do so, I confess, I must marry your daughter. I'm going to stop you right there. That sounds really far-fetched on so many levels. Sure, it's a cute story, but probably just based on a rumor. But Santina did marry Benny Evangelist, and she staunchly supported his healing practices. Of course she did because they were very lucrative healing practices. That's true. Benny did quite well for himself. He charged his many clients $10 per healing session. And that's a little over $143 in today's dollars. It's also twice what the workers on the Ford assembly line were earning in an entire day. And they were the highest paid factory workers in the country. And at the same time, Benny also ran a successful carpentry business. With both businesses booming, Benny's cash flow was high enough to allow him to speculate in real estate. And it also allowed Benny and Santina to live comfortably and start a family. By July 3rd, 1929, the time of their deaths, they had four children. Angelina, the eldest, was eight. Their son, Matthew, was six. And Eugenia, nicknamed Jenny, was four. And their youngest child, Mario, was only 18 months old when they were all killed. With the family's flush finances, investigators at first leaned toward robbery as the motive behind the crime. Vincent Elias, the real estate dealer who found the bodies of the evangelist family, had come by that morning to complete the sale of a farm to Benny. The previous day, Benny had also arranged to have a shipment of lumber brought to his home on the morning of the murder. But the lumber was never delivered. How had the delivery men known not to come to the house? And while Benny said he would pay cash on delivery, the police found no money in the house. The police found these circumstances suspicious. Perhaps the delivery men decided to kill and rob Benny instead. But a simple robbery doesn't feel right. Why would they kill the entire family? And why so brutally? Why decapitate Benny and mutilate the rest of the bodies? The extreme viciousness of these murders seems more like a crime of passion or revenge. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now let's continue the story. So far, we've dabbled a bit in Benny Evangelist's interest in the occult, but his ambitions went far beyond love potions and palm readings. We've mentioned his trances that started in 1906. Benny transcribed 20 years of his visions into a book that he called The Oldest History of the World. It was a 200-page volume, meant to be the first of four that would cover 18,588 years, the entire history of the world, as Benny claimed to have experienced it in his visions. Hmm, The book is incredibly eccentric. My story is from my own views and signs that I see from 12 to 3 a.m. 
In this book, I shall express all my views of the past 20 years. In this great continent are all the generations. Before the creation of God, there existed nothing but air and water. The first chapter starts over 4,000 years before the creation of Adam, when the seven winds create the first celestial being, God. Growing bored, God creates another celestial being, Eternity, and together they create lesser beings, each named after a planet. As well as a celestial gardener named Eldam, who after asking God for an assistant, is told to go to the edge of the sea. As soon as Eldam had finished, there appeared to him a fish called Dolphin, who left her milk on the banks of the water. Then Eldam breathed three times on the dolphin's milk and covered it with earth. After three days, Eldam returns to the spot and finds a small, hairy creature with the head of a dolphin. This dolphin hybrid is Benny's version of the biblical first man, Adam, with a dolphin's head. You weren't kidding when you said this was eccentric. Well, told you. As strange as it is, the oldest history of the world was the cornerstone of Benny's occult practices. He had hundreds of copies printed, and he would stand on the sidewalk, handing them out to passerbys. And when police arrived at the murder scene on July 3rd, 1929, there were scores of copies littered all around Benny's office. And that's not all. Remember that makeshift shrine that the police found in the basement? Yes, it was surprisingly elaborate. Eight life-size elaborate figures made out of paper mache, cloth, and hair were hung by wire over an altar. Benny had recently commissioned them from the George P. Johnson Flag and Decorating Company. This is what I want. It certainly uh, makes an impression. That it should. The winged one is Jove, the messenger, and the beauty is Venus, comforter to all. And you want these man-sized? Absolutely. These are the celestial planets. They must be impressive for my exposition. They must be fearsome and awe-inspiring. Eight of these won't be cheap. I'd say at least a hundred dollars. I'm a businessman. You're a businessman. We can make it work. Benny's plan was to open the shrine up to the general public as the, quote, Great Celestial Planet Exposition, and he applied to the city of Detroit for permits. But authorities, worried that the exhibit would be disturbing, denied Benny's request. Nonetheless, among his Italian followers, Benny apparently led sermons down in the basement shrine, under the watchful eyes of the planets. And hovering above the rest in the center of the altar was an electrified glass eye, which Benny referred to as the sun. Does this seem a bit out there and extreme to you? You bet. And the police investigating the murders found it pretty bizarre, too. Okay, let's review the state of the victims' bodies. Benny Evangelist was found in his office, decapitated, his head resting on the floor at his feet in a pool of blood. First bedroom. Santina, Benny's wife, was found in bed with her head dangling by a single thread. Little Mario was in her arms, his skull crushed. Second bedroom. Matthew and Jenny were found in their beds and the oldest daughter, Angelina, was lying on the floor. All their heads were bashed in and their limbs hacked. Six victims, an entire family. The murders were extremely brutal. And with the oldest history of the world, Benny's healing practices, and the bizarre shrine in the basement linking the family to the occult, investigators came to a conclusion. 
The murderer was likely a follower of Benny's cult, a religious maniac. Driven to frenzy, possibly by madness. Or possibly because they realized they'd been duped. You see, while both Benny and Santina Evangelist were very open about their interest in the occult, they remained practicing Catholics. They made sure that their children were baptized and followed Catholic sacraments. The oldest child, Angelina, even attended the parochial school of San Francisco Church, where the family worshipped. Their family priest was Father Francis Beccarini. He had baptized each of the couple's children at San Francisco Church. Thank you for speaking with me, Father. Of course, Detective. Do you think Benny Evangelist was crazy? I do not believe he was sincere in practicing the creed he had established. You're saying he was running a con? I think he was a charlatan. He founded that cult with its weird props and practices, with the sole idea of making money. He was of a practical mind. But we don't need to take Father Beccarini's word for it. We also know that Benny charged a handsome fee to heal his followers. Well, the equivalent to over $140 today. Not exactly chump change. And he refused his services if the person couldn't pay. Don't forget, Benny was also a successful businessman in his own right as a carpenter and real estate speculator. He could afford to be generous, but that doesn't appear to be the case. Perhaps the killer was sick, desperate for help but with no money. And Benny had refused him. Exactly. Imagine if the killer had discovered that Benny Evangelist was really a Catholic, that he did not believe in what he was peddling. Ooh, that would be rage-inducing. Also, remember that when Benny's body was discovered, photos of a dead child in a coffin were found next to his severed head. What if that child was someone that Benny was unable to heal? What if that child's parents discovered that the holy man who failed to save their child was really a fraud? These seem like motives that could inspire such a brutal set of murders. And so the Detroit police focused on the cult angle. As a matter of strategy, Detroit police wanted the Evangelist family's funeral, held on July 6, 1929, to be as public as possible. Police believed that if the killer was indeed a religious maniac, they would have an irrepressible urge to see their victims again. There were an estimated 3,000 attendees at San Francisco Church, spilling out into the streets of Detroit. It had been three days since the murders. Father Beccarini presided over the funeral. The souls of the just are in the hand of God, and no torment shall touch them. They seemed, in the view of the foolish, to be dead, and their passing away was thought an infliction, and their going forth from us utter destruction. But they are in peace. Police were at the ceremony to observe the audience containing many Italian immigrants and other mourners and gawkers. There was one man, a John Ryan, who acted out at the funeral and was taken in for questioning. But Ryan was quickly released from custody after police determined that he knew nothing of the murders. And weighing less than 90 pounds, Ryan's physical frailty made it very unlikely for him to be the killer. So far, the police still had nothing. The only other real lead detectives had on the case had come earlier, on the very day the murders were discovered. Two acquaintances of the evangelist family, Umberto Tecchio and Angelo Depoli, were arrested and questioned on July 3rd. Says here that you two songbirds live at 2830 Pierce Street. The boarding house? Yes. That's only six blocks from the evangelist home. Tecchio says that you were at the place last night around 8 p.m.? 
I just bought a house from Evangelist. And you were discussing the deal? Yes. Well, that makes you the last person to see Evangelist or his family alive. That makes you interesting. And your pal here just happened to have this giant banana knife lying around here when we searched your place. What's a guy need such a big knife for? Non parlo inglese. Pardon? No English, he says. That's convenient. For us cops, I mean. Spares us from hearing you lie about how these stains aren't blood. No solo sangue, culo. No blood, eh? Just like no English? I think you understand me just fine, Depoli. But you just keep on not talking. See where it gets you. Can we go now? You're not going anywhere. Not till the tests come back on this knife. Unfortunately for the police, those tests proved the stains on Depoli's knife were, in fact, not blood. And other tenants in the boarding house backed up Tecchio and Depoli's alibi. The two men claimed to have gone drinking at a speakeasy and were back at home sleeping when the murders were committed. Well, lacking further evidence, Detroit police released Tecchio and Depoli before the evangelist's funeral. But authorities were not impressed with Depoli's stubborn refusal to answer questions. Not long after he was released, Depoli was deported to Italy as an undesirable. That left police with little choice but to go back to the evidence at the crime scene. The killer left two major clues behind. The first was a set of bloody footprints in Benny's office that led up the stairs to the bedrooms. Unfortunately for Vincent Elias, the real estate broker who found the bodies and notified police, his shoe size was a close match to the footprints. Police questioned him for several hours but eventually decided he was innocent. The small size of the footprints indicated that the killer was short, while the victim's wounds showed that the killer was also strong. A set of fingerprints was also discovered, the second major clue, but none of the men arrested thus far matched. With the foot and fingerprints coming up empty for the time being, detectives continued to comb through the myriad paperwork from the evangelist house. This includes the copies of the oldest history of the world, of course, as well as Bibles and astrological charts. There was also a lot of correspondence, much of it in Italian that needed to be translated, but one letter contained the name and return address of a Louis Evangelista in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. Now, Louis Evangelista was known to police due to his involvement in the ambush and murder of a loan shark named Felice Argento in 1926, three years before the St. Albans Street Massacre. Argento was a member of a criminal extortion racket known as La Mano Nera. That's Italian for the Black Hand. Well, the Black Hand operated in various Italian-American communities in the United States in the early 20th century, including Detroit. While the press and police at the time tried to play up the Black Hand as a singular criminal enterprise, it was really more of a modus operandi used by separate gangs. Typically, Black Hand criminals would target more successful Italian immigrants, sending them a letter threatening bodily harm, kidnapping, arson, or murder. A specified dollar amount would be requested to be delivered to a specific place, and the letter would be signed with the symbol of a hand in a warning gesture drawn in thick black ink. Hence the name. The Detroit police believed that the black hand might have targeted Benny and his family as revenge for Argento's death at the hands of Louis Evangelista, thought to be a relative of Benny's. So, on July 10th, 1929, about a week after the massacre, two detectives were dispatched to Pennsylvania to talk with Lewis. Lewis Evangelista? 
Yes, I'm the foreman. We're here about the murders in Detroit. Mm. Uh, please, come into my office. We understand that you left Detroit about three years ago? Yeah, that sounds right. The trouble with Argento. Has it been so long? He was after your father-in-law, correct? Yes, the amount was uh, 5000 I think, for protection. Your father-in-law, Angelo Paparo, refused to pay? That is correct. Angelo agreed to meet Argento, but he had me waiting to surprise Argento when he came to pick up the money. And you shot him? No, that was Angelo. We asked for police protection, but you weren't there. What happened next? Well, we did not wait for the hand to retaliate. We ran. I ended up here. Were you close with Benny Evangelist? No. We have distant relations, but I knew him by reputation. Do you think these murders could be in any way related to your feud with the Black Hand? It's been so long, no? Well, perhaps it could be so. I think not. We did find these two letters in Benny Evangelist's house. Notice the signature. Black Hand. Now, they don't refer to you or your father-in-law. Mr. Evangelista, when your family was threatened, did the extortionists ever hint that they could do what they did to this family? There's no threat in these at all. Only a request for money. Do you think the Black Hand would go to this sort of extreme, killing women and children, if Benny didn't pay up? Honestly, no. Nothing like this. Butchering a family does not seem like business to me. Again, I, I did not know Benjamin well, but I do know that he dealt in dark things, and his followers are crazy. These murders seem most like something they could do. Thank you for your time. The detectives eventually agreed with Louis Evangelista's conclusion that the St. Aubin murders were too brutal to have been carried out by the extortionists. Robbery was a possible motive, but other than the lumber delivery that never happened, there was nothing apparently missing from the house. Just a little over a week after the killings, investigators found themselves again turning back to their original suspected motive. Religious mania. But despite rumors and the large attendance at the funeral, very few were willing to admit that they were followers of Benny. Giving police very little to go on. But they would soon get a break. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now back to the story. Detective Michael Larco was a member of Detroit's Italian Squad, a unit specially formed to fight organized crime. Larco was one of the first detectives to arrive at the St. Aubin Street crime scene, and so he was familiar with the case. And like the rest of his colleagues, he found himself baffled as to who did it. But, as luck would have it, in August 1929, about a month after the murders, Larco was handed a prisoner detained by U.S. immigration officials. This the guy? That's him. Italian. 35 years old. His paperwork's been rejected three times. Currently staying over the Canadian border in Windsor. And now he's my problem, man. Okay, buddy, come on, get in the car. Larco took this man from Windsor, Ontario, back to the station for questioning. Turn out your pockets. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 3587 St. Aubin. The oldest history. You know Benny Evangelist? No. You don't? No. Well, then how come he got all of his stuff with his name on it? Party favors? I know nothing of that swindler. You're in a world of trouble already, bucko. 
If I was you, I'd start talking. It's the only way I can help you. The Windsor man, whose name was unfortunately not published in newspaper accounts, began to open up to Detective Larco. Over the next several days, Larco listened to what the man had to say. Then the detective ran out and attempted to verify the man's story, piece by piece. These interviews occurred at all hours, day or night. The Windsor man paced back and forth in his cell as Larco asked him for more details. With each session, discussing his interactions with Benny Evangelist, the man grew more agitated. He fit the profile of a religious maniac. And gradually, a narrative emerged. I'm a good man, proud man. I work hard all my life. I grew ill, so I came to Detroit to see a doctor. Say, ah. Ah. You are quite ill, young man. You cannot work under these conditions. Oh, this is bad. So I think, how will I continue to live? I ask him for help. He says he knows of someone who can help me. He gives me his address. So I go to see him next. Benny Evangelist. Good day. How can I help you? I'm told you can heal the sick. That I can, but not for free. Do you have payment? I handed him $10 in credit, and he took me down into his basement with the planets. He goes into a trance. All is still for a moment, but then he speaks and thrashes. I'm afraid. And then he comes out of it and tells me to hope. It works, I think. I feel better, but then I feel worse. I have to go back. Evangelist says he can still help me. But each time he charged me another $10. I have to take credit for my savings account. And eventually it runs empty. My powers cannot work if you cannot pay. I'm sorry. I'll be happy to help you if you come back with the money. He betrayed me. This was July 2nd. Later I beg a friend to borrow the money. I return the next morning and I had the money. We go to his office, and as he starts the trance, I take out a meat cleaver I stuffed in my coat, and I aim for his neck. It didn't go all the way through, so I grab that cheating bastard by the hair and strike again. Twice. I'm still for a minute, and his dead eyes looking up at me from the floor. And then one of his daughters walks in, and, and I know what I must do. The Windsor man went on to describe to Detective Larco how he slaughtered the rest of the evangelist family before they could wake up. It was a perfect narrative. An unstable man, duped into Benny's cult, realizes he's been taken for a fool and gets his revenge. Simple. And Larco claimed that he verified the man's story. He traveled out to Windsor and found the man's bank account statement, corroborating the $10 withdrawals to Benny Evangelist. There was just one problem. It was almost certainly not true. An account of Larco's arrest of the Windsor man and his tale of murder was published in the August 20th, 1929 edition of the Border City Star. However, Larco's superiors, including the lead detective on the case, Inspector Fred Fromm, were completely unaware that the Windsor man had been detained or even that Larco was working this angle at all. They learned from the newspaper that the Windsor man had been detained for four days. And when they tried to contact Larco, he was incommunicado for over a day. You see, the city of Detroit had put up a $4,000 reward to the person responsible for apprehending the killer of Benny Evangelist and his family. And Michael Larco was having financial difficulties of his own. 
What in the blazes were you thinking, detective? I'm sorry, sir. I was simply acting with the best of intentions. Were you? I didn't want to raise a hullabaloo until I had all the facts. I wanted to spare the department the embarrassment if I was wrong. Really? Your silence had nothing to do with the reward money, hmm? Of course not. Right. Well, you're lucky you're not being thrown out on your caboose. We'll take over from here. The other detectives interviewed the Windsor man themselves and were left unconvinced of his guilt. And comparing his fingerprints with those found at the crime scene showed that they were not a match. It was only a minor scandal. The papers said that Detective Larco acted with, quote, the best of intentions, and that while the suspect did not match the evidence, he may still have held crucial information. The Windsor man was quietly released from custody a short while later. As for Detective Larco, his story doesn't have a happy ending. He was eventually convicted of soliciting a bribe and kicked out of the Detroit Police Department. It appeared that the investigation of the St. Aubin Street Massacre had hit a dead end. The murders of faith healer Benny Evangelist, his wife, and their four children were inexplicable. Benny's bizarre cult, with its own strange Bible and basement shrine, along with the brutality of the murders themselves, suggested that the killer was a maniacal follower. But few would admit to following Benny, and those who did had solid alibis. And there was no evidence to tie any of his followers to the crime. And while the evangelists were well off, they didn't appear to be the victims of a robbery. So the question remains. Who killed this family? And why? Could the answer lie further back in Benny's powwowing days with an old friend? An old friend known to be a killer who may have already faked his death? Or in the ambitions of a dangerous, bloodthirsty rival cult leader? Or could the answer have been staring the investigators in the face the whole time? Bringing the case back full circle. We'll look into all of these and more next time on Unsolved Murders. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the St. Aubin Street Massacre. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Aaron Thomas and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson. Mm-hmm.